Welcome to episode 12 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. What we see a lot is people coming in and wanting to rescue somebody. Somebody's going wrong, I'm gonna come in on my white horse and rescue you. And, and often what that can lead to is unrealistic expectations and people getting angry that um, I've given you all this support and you know, it hasn't worked. Hi, I'm Ruan, and this is part two of a two-part conversation on addictions with Professor Dan Lubman. It'll probably be helpful to start with last week's episode, so part one, where we talk about addictions in general. But if you'd prefer to jump straight into part two, you should be able to fill in most of the gaps. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. If you'd like to ask Professor Lubman a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. Professor, could you maybe take a step back and talk about addictive patterns in general and what it is about being human that makes us so prone to being hooked? Look, that's a great question. Um, and I think I think we need to go back sort of to the dawn of time to really understand <laughs> that issue. I mean, what we need to understand is when we're talking about addiction, we're talking about a very old part of the brain. And a part of the brain that we share with so many other animals. So this is a part of the brain that essentially has has sort of evolved to ensure the survival of our species. And essentially, it's part of the brain that really ensures that we choose behaviors that ensure the survival of our species. So we're talking here about drinking, so making sure that we drink, that we eat, that we procreate, so we have sex to make sure our species continues. And not only that, is that we look after our young. So we make sure that we create an environment that where we look after our young. And those four key sort of behaviors are critical for survival. And we have a brain system, you know, in that old part of the brain, it's called the brain's reward system. And essentially, behaviors that we do that, that um, ensure those four activities, uh, release a chemical in our brain called dopamine, which is sort of makes our brain, brain identify those behaviors that are the right behaviors to do. So every time we release dopamine in that area, it tells our brain, it sort of sends a massive surge saying, yeah, keep doing what you're doing because, you know, it's the right thing. And so we've had this system in our, you know, under us that's sort of in some ways being critical to our survival and our growth as a species. And the challenge is, is now we have uh, substances and behaviors that also are able to tap into that system, that rudimentary system for survival. So we know that all the drugs that people enjoy and abuse to one degree or another, one of the reasons why people enjoy them so much is because they also powerfully release dopamine in that part of the brain. So it tricks that part of the brain into thinking, geez, these things, you know, are really important and really important for survival. And so we get these big dopamine surges when, you know, when we drink or smoke or, you know, take drugs and even gamble. You know, we look at gambling machines and the act of gambling and that nature of reward and the associated money with survival has also been shown to release dopamine in these brain regions. So these behaviors constantly tell our brain that it's a really important thing to do. 
So it's not surprising is that we keep doing those behaviors and our brain keeps reinforcing those behaviors that suddenly our brain is saying, hang on a minute, these behaviors are much more important than other things in your life related to your survival. And those things then lead to this sort of pattern of, I suppose, thinking associated with addiction, which is around just sort of a, you know, a narrowing of focus just on the activity itself. So just on behaviors that lead to accessing, using or recovering from alcohol, drugs and gambling. And that system also feeds into another part of our system, the front part of our brain, which is to do with planning and judgment and long-term goals and, and thinking about what are, and what we know is when that system is really highly activated, that reward system, that old part of the brain, sort of in some ways shuts down that sort of front part of the brain, that front part of the brain doesn't work as well. So our choices, we're sort of much more likely to narrow our choices to short-term rewards over long-term rewards. Well, more, it's much more difficult for us to sort of in some ways monitor and control our behavior because we're focusing so much on the moment. Right, that's really interesting. So it's basically the same part of our brain that's activated either with certain substances like alcohol or smoking or with certain behaviors like gambling. That's, um, that's really interesting because Netflix have released a doco recently called The Social Dilemma and it shows just how addictive social media can be, sort of like that gambling class of addictions. So what are your thoughts on social media addictions? You know, we're, we're social animals. And connection is also a critical part of our survival, you know. So being connected to other, you know, is core to us. We have parts of our brain that, you know, in our frontal part of our brain called mirror neurons, for example, that um, allow us to experience what others experience. You know, they're part of our empathy pathways so that when we see, if I see you and I see that you've had a bad day and I see that you're down and sad and crying, then those parts of my brain switch on and I can connect with your experience. You know, we're built and wired to be social animals, to live in communities, you know, to want to fit in and to be part of each other's world. And, and that's really important for our survival. You know, you want to be part of the tribe. You want to be protected by that tribe. And, and, and so again, you know, parts of our brain light up, dopamine gets released when we feel connected to the group. And that's why being part of social groups can be so protective and, and so good for our mental health because they give us that sense of belonging and, and, and that sense of um, support. And so now we have um, this new invention in the, you know, in the 21st century around social media and, and, and in some ways connection, you know, on turbocharge, you know, that we can connect people instantaneously without sort of just, you know, with a, with a, the flick of a finger in some ways, we can connect with people and we, you know, and there's this pressure to sort of be liked. And we know that a lot of the algorithms that have been built around a lot of these social media engines are actually built on sort of psychological concepts that drive our behavior to continue to use them. And so it's not surprising with any new entity that you know that has been designed to sort of tap into sort of you know basic human behaviors that we're seeing this the effects of this you know, in so many people and um 
really we're just learning about this as we go on and and really understanding its impacts but you know there is an enormous pressure to to be liked you know that's that's a sort of in, something that comes from our evolution we want to be part of the, the group we want to you know and, and what's interesting if you go to you know just as a tangent if we go to studies in animals and particularly there's a lot of studies come out the states looking at human primates and if you look at human primate and you look at animals that have been brought up there are unfortunately were brought up um, without parents they were orphaned what you find is that primates like ourselves rapidly develop a social hierarchy so these are animals that were brought up alone without a parent so really terrible developmental upbringing really traumatized but as teenagers were allowed to sort of get together and what you saw was this rapid development of a social hierarchy where there's some primates right at the top who are the you know top of the social pack and then some that are really at the bottom and what was interesting is when researchers started looking at their brains and looking at their responses, what they saw is that all the animals, when they were deprived and alone, the parts of the brain that underlie that dopamine, that reward part of the brain, what you saw was that dopamine system was sort of not working well. They, they sort of had problems in, in that dopamine area. They they, they, they had receptors that weren't working properly. You know, that part of the brain wasn't working. But what was interesting is when they got put into social groups, the ones that are at the top of the social group, so the ones that felt they had control over their lives, that felt connected, that felt supported, what you saw is those parts of the brain rapidly normalized and became much more like a normal sort of reward system. Whereas the animals at the bottom were still had disordered brains. And then when those animals were offered the option of taking alcohol or drugs, what you saw is the animals at the top of the social hierarchy chose not to choose them. Whereas the ones on the bottom, you know, were drinking to excess and using to excess. So this whole idea fits into, you know, what we see in our social world. You know, if you grow up in an environment where you experience trauma, where you don't feel supported, where you feel disconnected, where you don't have those, an enriched environment, you know, to grow up in, then your brain in some ways doesn't have, you know, is not working in the right way to sort of feel in control and have sort of a robust mental health. And so then you're more prone to seek out substances that help you feel more balanced, to help you manage that sort of dysphoria and distress and that sense of disconnection. And, and it's interesting, I only mentioned that because, you know, what we see here is we have platforms now that give you this ready access to social connection. And I suppose, you, you know, we haven't done enough research now, but for people who have been traumatized, who have, have felt abandoned or rejected or had to have difficulties, and they now have a platform that they can have this sense of being connected, even if it means presenting a persona that is the most likable persona to get the most friends, to get the most likes, you know, to, to get the most social status in terms of having the most followers, then you can understand how addictive that could be and, and how that might lead you on a path that while on the face of it, you're getting these immediate rewards and supports and 
to everyone else, seeming to have this perfect life with perfect friends and perfect things to eat and mm. <laughs> perfect, uh, you know, perfect, uh, perfect opportunities, body, perfect, perfect body, perfect everything. Then again, you know, it's a front and, and then what, what is happening to the person underneath and how much are they struggling to sort of manage that disconnect between what their public persona is and how they really feel. And, the, you know, and obviously we, we talked before around shame and stigma and that conflict that we often see in people who who come to our services, that, 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 that real challenge. That's really interesting. I'd not thought of that. So basically by projecting this really perfect image, if your life isn't quite there, the stigma associated with that sort of difference, with that gap just grows. It becomes harder for you to reach out and get help because you've been telling everyone you're A-OK literally frequently online and and you may not be and so that is that basically what you're saying that that gap that difference between actually getting help becomes so much harder well i think for all of us i mean i think we all like to present a good image like all of us sure you know you know there's a lot of things you know one of the things that i see as being part of my job is i get to see thousands of people and i think it'd be fair to say that we all have an inner voice inside our head that's not always the most positive and that likes to pick up on our faults and things that we'd like to improve. So we have this, often this internal, negative, critical, judging voice in our heads. And we don't often like to make that public to others. We like to present an image that's much more happy and much more sort of connected. And, you know, and often we have loved ones in our life that we're able to turn to when we are in those moments where you know we have doubt and you know we're not sure and we we feel confused so often we're lucky enough to be able to turn to people to actually voice some of those concerns and to you know and get people's feedback and and often what we have is friends who just tell us you know yeah don't be stupid (laughs) that's you know that's a that's a crazy idea you know you know that's that's completely not you know, rational or whatever. So we have people we can turn to who can sort of be our sort of in some ways, you know, our muse to actually ground us and give us some home truths and allow us to sort of in some ways calibrate that internal voice. But if you're spending lots of time projecting an image that is not you and that voice that's sort of that negative critical voice is, and that, that deception that you're trying to sort of push the reality is it's going to create more conflict for you and you're going to feel more of a fraud and you're feeling like you're going to get caught out. And then it gets harder and harder to reach out and ask for help because then what do you say to people that you're, you know, that your life is a lie or that, you know, that this isn't really happening. And then you feel more and more of a fraud. And, and that can be a very lonely place where actually you can't actually feel that you can be honest with others because, you know, you're pursuing this sort of idealized version of yourself. And we all know that the fantasy of what we would like, you know, better looking, better body, more intelligent, you know, more sociable, more funny, richer, you know, you know more friends. The list you know, is long. All these things. The list going as an enormous, <laughs> enormous Christmas list, isn't it? Um, but, you know, that list, that's, that, that's the human condition. We you know we're never happy. You know, we're always we're always struggling, and that's why you know positive psychology and mindfulness you know has grown so much because 
it's the human condition to sort of constantly doubt and criticize and judge. And it's about how we all learn to accept who we are, you know, warts and all, and, and to come to terms with that and not fight that as much as we do, put our energies into things we can actually change rather than the things we can't. But, you know, that's where we're at, you know, we're at, and, and I think this is where it ties into addiction. Often people are, are presenting lives or presenting, you know, none of us like to talk about the demons that we have inside of us or the, the traumas that we've experienced or the, the challenges that we've got. So what are you hearing from your patients and from the call lines on people's experiences with social media? So many people say to me, you know, that they're struggling with their social media accounts and, and we have a chat about, you know, that they've got lots of things on, so let's just close it down, you know, for, while we focus on the other stuff. And then they close it and they come back to me two, three weeks later and they just say, oh, I feel just so much calmer and I've got all, so much more energy. And then they feel a bit better and they go back on it and then they come back to me and then they say, oh, look, I've decided to come off it again for a while. And, but it is, I mean, I think people don't realize how stress, I mean, it's meant to be helpful, but it's actually really stressful. And it's here to stay. It's not going to go away. They say uh, comparison is the death of happiness. And boy, if there's one tool for comparison, it's probably social media, right? Like, And, and, yeah. so, and so dangerous because it's, a, it's an unfiltered access to the mob, oh, basically. Yeah, so dangerous. But I mean, what do you do, right? Like, I guess, and this is maybe a good way for us to wrap up the chat because you started by explaining how addictive patterns of behavior tap into the same parts of our brains. You know, whether it's one particular substance or another or one behavior like gambling or another like social media. So if someone is listening, what is the best way for them to reach out if they're concerned? It's uh, very difficult for us to admit to that and to, to, to share that. And, um, and that's why it's so important that even, even though you might be concerned about something and you've raised an issue with them, and obviously it's finding the right time to raise that issue. Obviously, if they're emotional or if they've been drinking or using, it's probably not the best time to raise it. It's probably finding the right time, planning that time to raise that concern, you know, about, you know, I'm concerned about you, you know, I'm concerned about um, what's going on for you at the moment. That's a tough conversation to have. Really, really tough. Really tough, but so, so important for the person on the other side to hear. Because, you know, when you're in that mind space and if you're constantly in a space where you don't feel you can be real and you're constantly, you know, you're your own worst, harsh critic, you don't feel like anyone will understand you. You don't feel like anyone will want to help you. Why would they want to help you? Because you're a fraud. Why would anyone want to be near you and so your immediate thought is everyone everyone will reject you if they find out so you know to actually have somebody there to actually and i know it you know i know it's really tough it's really tough when you're seeing a friend or family member really put themselves in harm's way and you know, and you know repeatedly do things that are not in their best interest very hard to watch that very easy to sort of have a bit of a go and walk away. Really, really, really tough to stay there on that journey and to acknowledge that you can't change them. You, whatever you say, you know, is not gonna, you're not gonna be able to tell them what to do, you know? The only person who can change is they, and they need to 
feel able to do that. And, you know, what we do a lot in the people that we see coming in our ringing, you know, ringing our helplines or contacting us online is, and we all, I think this, you know, will resonate with everyone. We can all decide there's parts of us that we want to change. But just because you decide that you want to get fitter or lose weight or whatever it is you want to choose to do doesn't mean that tomorrow you would have succeeded at it. We all know that changing our behavior is really, really tough. We spend ages planning around how we'd love to eat more healthily or reduce this or do that or save money or whatever. But the actual doing is actually really tough. And so it's, an, so it's a mixture of you know, identifying it as the most important thing that I'm doing at the moment. It's, it's the importance of seeing you know, how much of it is a priority how confident do I feel? So if I've, you know, tried to lose weight or, you know, try to get fit multiple times before and every time I've done it, I've sort of given up after two days, then my confidence levels are going to be poor and low. And so how do I, how do I actually work to, to, to work out what went wrong before and how to build that sort of confidence levels up? And also my self-efficacy, my skills in being able to do that are likely to be you know, again, pretty low. So again, how do I develop strategies, you know, to help you feel able the next time you do it, that you've got the skills to be able to do that. So change is not about just simply saying, oh, I'll change. It's, it's complicated. It's about having the right tools. It's around having the confidence and support to do that. And it's also seeing it as a, as a priority. So often people will say to me, well, why won't that person you know, stop using drugs? It's having an impact on their life. But it, like, if they're homeless, if they're financially <laughs> challenged, if they're having family conflict, if, you know, if there's loads of other things going on in their life, then yeah, the drug use is causing them problems. But it's, to be frank, it's not the priority. So it's about understanding that we're all complex creatures with lots of things going on. And the key thing is about understanding where people are coming from. And, you know, and, and from the outside, it can be very easy to judge and to say, well, Roman should really stop drinking. It's not good for him. But without understanding why you're drinking and what that's about and why it's so tough for you to quit and what you've tried and why that hasn't gone well. And, you know, without understanding that and, 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 giving you the opportunity to sort of think about how I can support you, you know, pursuing something, then, you know, it's a very lonely ride. So I think that's the key thing. The key thing is, even though it might seem small, staying in there with somebody, constantly checking in, even if, you know, people tell you, you know, I'm all right, I don't want help. I think not letting it go and just, you know, at the right time, just giving people a reminder that, you know, you do care about them. You are concerned about them and you're there for them if they need you and you're not going away you know, until, you know, and, you know, until you feel they're ready to, um, to put themselves in a better place, you know. And that's just having that conversation, staying in there for the long term, not, and the other thing is, I think, not being over-invested. I mean, I think, you know, often what we see a lot is, you know, people coming in and wanting to rescue somebody, you know, mm -hmm. wanting, you know, somebody's going wrong. I'm going to come in on my white horse and rescue you and stuff. And, and often what that can lead to is unrealistic expectations and, and then people getting angry that some, I've given you all this support and, you know, it hasn't worked. So I think 
better just to be in there, to not have great expectations, just to be there and being there along the journey, you know, to look at what can be helpful, to, you know, to constantly ask their permission to provide sort of support or advice, you know, because often people just view that support as nagging or critical. So it's about asking permission. Is it all right if I, you know, if we have a chat about this, is it all right if I raise some things that I might have seen that might be useful? So, but it's, it's, it's continuing that conversation, really. You know, what really strikes me is how basically identical addictive patterns are, you know, whether it's alcohol or drugs or gambling or social media. You touched on how important it is not to judge, and it reminds me of how you said earlier that often addictions are band-aids to cover up deeper issues and trauma. And look, I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners would be wondering with me, can you inherit addictive behavior? And, you know, because it seems that some people struggle with these sorts of things and for others, they'll just never have an addictive tendency in their whole life. And if that's you, if you don't have an addictive personality, it makes it really hard to relate to someone who seems to be struggling with things that are just not an issue for you yourself. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a great question. I think what, what would surprise most people is that um, addiction is incredibly heritable. So it's one of the most heritable mental disorders. So for example, studies where it's looked at um, essentially orphans who've been adopted out to different families. Those studies consistently find that family history is one of the strongest predictors of an addiction, of somebody developing. If you've got a strong family history of having problems with alcohol, then there's a high risk that you will also develop problems with alcohol. So there is a very strong family history like there is for other mental disorders. And so often we're asking around, people often know their mental health history, but knowing that you've got a history of alcohol or drug use or gambling in the family, I, th I think that's really important to know. It doesn't mean that you, know, you will definitely develop those problems, but you know, like everything in life, if you know these things, then the important thing is to put strategies in place to minimize that in increased risk that you have. So if you know there's a risk, I think you know, it's about making sure you've got strategies in place to minimize the risk of developing a problem. And, and that might be around how you approach alcohol, your mental health, your supports. The critical thing is, is, is you know, and, and relates to our previous conversation as well, the most important thing that people can do is get informed. You know, whether you're a friend looking to seek somebody out, help somebody else, or you're worried about your own space, you know, there's so much information out there. If people go counselingonline.org.au or gamblinghelponline.org.au, lots of really critical information out there. There's lots of really great information that's available. Get informed and, and learn how to, you know, manage risks. And that's what's really important. Yeah, so reaching out to your mate or your loved one and having difficult conversations that come from the right place and from an educated place. Professor Dan, if you had a crystal ball, how concerned are you about social media addictions in the future? Um, I mean, I think what's really clear and what we've seen is that as we make behaviours or drugs that, you know, that are potentially addictive, as we make them more available, more accessible, more easy to, to, to use, what we see almost invariably is increasing in harms. 
So the more we've made, more we've liberalized alcohol, the more we've made it cheaper, the more we've made it more available and accessible. All we see is this straight line up in terms of harms in the community related to alcohol. Similarly with gambling, the more we've made gambling easier and easier to use, the more we've marketed it and advertised it. Again, the more we're seeing problems with gambling. And the, and the reverse is true of smoking. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, you know, huge rates of smoking. And then what we've seen is, you know, the cost of smoking, the excess, you know, the acceptance of smoking in the community are able to actually smoke in particular locations. They've all changed. And what we've seen is rates of smoking in the community dramatically drop. So we know the more we make something cheaper and easier to access and also socially sanctioned, the more we see harms associated with it. And I think social media is really in its infancy. We still don't really understand. There's obviously things about it that are really, you know, really helpful for humanity, but what it's an unintended harms are, we're only starting just to find out. And at the moment, it's a completely unregulated space. We're, you know, when we look at alcohol and gambling, there's certainly problems, significant problems in that space, but we have at least some regulation around that that we're you know, trying to continually review and adjust. But in the social media space, it's essentially a free for all. And the idea is social media is good for you, you know, and uh, doesn't come with much warnings, doesn't come with a disclaimer, doesn't come with any, in any way, any accountability from the social media companies in terms of, you know, what can happen if, if it all goes wrong. So we're, we're early in this journey. We're still yet to understand what the impacts will be. But I, I think in my crystal ball, I think looking into the future, you know, I can imagine that, you know, there's going to be a lot more regulation around social media. Um, there's going to be a lot more information for people about how to navigate that space a lot better. Um, we've got to create safe environments for people. And when we see people essentially developing other addictions or mental health issues or increasing rates of suicide because of what they've experienced on social media, that's a real red flag that this area needs a lot more investment. We need to really understand um, what's happening and we need to make sure that what's offered is safe and that creates opportunities and benefits, but also minimizes risks as much as we can. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it is such a complex tool. And I think it just demonstrates how our society is becoming more and more complex and sophisticated. I mean, the irony is not lost on us. We use social media to promote these conversations and, and our podcasts. So, you know, it's a powerful tool on one hand, but often there's all these concerns that we're, we're hearing from our listeners. Um, on their engagement with social media. And so it's it's sort of the start for us in exploring what does it mean? And the pros are, have been celebrated so broadly, but what are the cons and how bad could they be? Yeah. So, and I yeah. can tell you that a lot of people that I see, I mean, we, you know, I'm fortunate to see so many people and so many people from different walks of life, different age groups, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different professions. So, you know, addiction affects us all. But I can tell you that when I'm seeing people in treatment, one of the first things that people do is switch off their social media. <laughs> they identify as an additional stressor. Yeah. That okay. it's something that are spending a lot of time every day thinking about, engaging with, 
or sort of recovering from. <laughs> so people identify it, it's taking a lot of mental energy to be on social media. You know, we often feel like we have to be on there because that's that's modern society. But I think when people sit back and reflect how much time they spend on it, how much time they worry about what they're posting or not posting, what they're replying to or not replying to, how much time they're reading it. That, you know, at the end of the day, we only have so much time in our life to pursue our values and goals. And we need to make really clear decisions around what we want to invest our time in. And sometimes spending an hour, two hours, three hours on social media, if it's not part of your core part of your job, when you could be spending that pursuing, you know, your physical health, your emotional health, um, being creative, pursuing other goals or values that you have. And I suppose that's the question we all need to have. We need to step back. We need to really be honest around how much time are we spending? You know, we've only got so much time to give, so much energy to give. It's a finite resource. And I suppose what we need to say is, you know, we need to ask that question every day. What are, what, what are my priorities? How much time do I want to spend on my priorities and how much have I got spare? And making sure that inadvertently we're not using up that precious resource on things that really have no long-term value for us. On that note, Professor Lubman, thank you for your expertise and your time today. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Professor Dan and the team at Turning Point are also involved in a new public campaign called Rethink Addiction to educate and advocate for the need to change Australia's attitude and approach to addiction. They formed an online petition and a forum to share your or read others' stories around addiction. Check it out at rethinkaddiction.org.au. Coming up next, we'll speak to someone who spent their entire career working with people who have borderline personality disorders. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single comment and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. It's also the best way to promote these conversations and make this podcast more discoverable by others.